On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we have heard lots in recent days about efforts being made around the world to find a vaccine for the coronavirus. But what does that actually mean? How do you create a vaccine for something? I mean, it sounds obvious because we get it all the time, but then when you stop and say, wait, I I don't actually have any idea how you do that. Well, we're going to talk to an immunologist from McMaster about how that is done and what it means and what they are doing in labs all over the place. We're also going to be talking about the economy because, boy, there is a second part to this story. There is the health issue for sure going on right now, but there's also the economic story and a lot of concerns about where we stand when we come out of this thing. And then as a break... We know you're getting heavy laden with coronavirus talk. We're going to be chatting about something else that's going on in the world. Tom Brady, arguably, maybe inarguably, the greatest quarterback in the history of pro football, appears to be on the move. By the time you hear this, he may have signed already with the Tampa Bay Buccaneer. Tom Brady, a Tampa Bay Buccaneer? Really? Yep. Stay tuned. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We know that not celebrating St. Patrick's Day right now are a whole bunch of people in white lab coats and full body hazmat suits who are furiously working at places all around the world to try to create a vaccine for the coronavirus. What we don't know, what I don't know, and as I said a few moments ago, what I expect you probably don't know unless you're in this world is how do you do that? It seems as though it's a, well, it is a mystery to those of us who don't do this. For how you go from understanding there is something that is bad out there to how you create something that put in our bodies that will prevent us or protect us from that. Dr. Matthew Miller is an associate professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences at McMaster. He is also a member of the Institute for Infectious Disease Research and the McMaster Immunology Research Center. He joins us now. Dr. Miller, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So uh, just before we get into the new vaccine idea, would it be a fair assumption that when we, um, when we find something, when we come across something that we haven't experienced before, the first thing that doctors and scientists and these people in this world do is to try and blast it with whatever vaccine or drug we have used successfully for other things before to see if it'll succumb? So certainly um, we do do that for drugs. Obviously, the road for approvals of new drugs or vaccines is very long. And so the first thing on the minds of doctors and scientists when a new outbreak happens is to see whether we can repurpose an existing drug that's already been approved to treat it. And if that doesn't work, as is in the case here, apparently, then what? Well, then we need to start um, rapidly looking through our chemical libraries to see if we can find something new. So there are lots and lots and lots of um, libraries of different chemicals around the world. Some of these contain hundreds of thousands or millions of different kind of random chemicals. Some are synthetic, some are naturally derived. And um, we have facilities to look at those in a really rapid manner, despite the large numbers, to try and find lead hits of chemicals that that work to um, inhibit the virus. I should back up just one second because it it apparently, and correct me if I misunderstood this, but it didn't take us all that long uh, to find what the coronavirus was. We've all seen now the pictures of the cell and super, super, super expanded. I call it the Death Star with explosions. Everyone knows what it looks like now. Um, it, it didn't take us long to identify what the problem was, correct? No, that's right. I mean, um, 
China actually has um, a very interesting and well thought out screening program in place for um, people who come into the hospital with respiratory infections that that aren't explainable by sort of the common causes of seasonal respiratory infections. And although this coronavirus is a new virus for humans, um, there are members of that same family uh, that have caused the common cold in humans for a long time. And so we were able to very quickly identify that this new virus belonged to that same family, and that um, allowed us to get to work quickly on um, on you know designing new drugs and vaccines. A very basic thing to you, maybe not to the rest of us. If we are able to find the coronavirus cell and, as I say, see it and identify it, do we know what it's made of? What what, what is one of these things made of? So the virus particle itself um, is made of proteins and lipids, which are what uh, make up the outside of our cells. And then, of course, the the inside part of the virus is made of um, this chemical called nucleic acid. So whereas our cells uh, have DNA, um, the coronavirus is made of RNA instead. And so basically, proteins, lipids, and RNA are what make up the virus. So if we know what it's made of, why is it so difficult then to neutralize it? Well, we basically have to figure out um, which part of the virus our immune system sees in order to protect us from it. Uh, And that isn't something um, that's always uh, all that intuitive. You, You kind of have to, you know, test this empirically. Once we know what part of the virus our immune system sees in order to generate protection, then we can go and use uh, vaccine strategies to sort of um, teach our immune system what the virus looks like so that it will protect us from getting infected before the infection ever happens. Okay, so there is a part of this, so it's not the entire coronavirus that is going to cause the effect. There's something about it that's going to react with our cells. Yeah, basically the whole virus gets into our cells and replicates to make us sick. But typically our immune system prefers to see only a small part of the virus in order to mount a protective response. So there are parts of the virus that if we showed that to our immune system, our immune system wouldn't be very effective at finding it and killing it. But there are other parts of the virus that the immune system really likes to see. And if we teach the immune system what that part of the virus looks like, it can protect us very effectively. And so that's what's critical, finding out which part of the virus the immune system needs to see in order to give us the best protection. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are chatting about vaccines, about the coronavirus, because uh, scientists, doctors, immunologists all over the place are trying to find a vaccine, trying to find something that would work as a vaccine. But we're talking about how you do that because it seems like an incredibly complicated process, and it is. There's a reason why the people who are doing this have PhD and other initials behind their name, not like us. Uh, We're chatting with uh, Dr. Matthew Miller, who has a PhD behind his name, by the way, uh, from McMaster Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences, uh, the Immunology Research Center. Just before the break, you were describing how the virus would attack the cell 
what you were describing sounded somewhat similar to an allergy that you have some people who this thing attacks and some people have a reaction to it. It sounds like some people may not have the same reaction or I, or would everybody presumably have the same reaction as long as this bacteria or this virus attack them? So as far as we know, everyone who gets infected by the virus does mount an immune reaction. And that's a good thing because it means that after people are infected, their immune system should protect them from getting infected with the virus again. Um, what can differ, though, is the extent to which people's immune systems react. And so what we're seeing right now um, when we look at people of different ages who get infected by the virus is that, you know, younger people um, tend to have more mild cases of infection than older people. And there's some thought that the people, young or old, who have really severe infections might have severe infections because their immune system overreacts to the virus. And that is actually um, a strategy for some of the new drugs that are being tried to fight the infection is actually not to target the virus itself, but to um, make sure the immune system is reacting in an appropriate way and not making us more sick. And, and again, I don't want to harp on the same thing, but theoretically, should th in theory, would everybody who gets this have the same reaction or do different things in different people's bodies and whether it's diet or immunity? or uh, I mean, certainly there's got to be different things that affect it or else everybody who got it would be either desperately ill or not ill at all. Yes, that's right. There's, there's a lot of... Um, uh, heterogeneity in the way that people respond. So there are sort of common sets of symptoms that, that we see in a wide variety of infections, and those include things like fever and dry cough and shortness of breath. But other people have much more severe um, symptoms, and they go on to develop things like pneumonias, for example, which can be especially dangerous to people who have underlying heart conditions or other lung problems, uh, even before they got infected. I know we're talking about finding a vaccine, but with what you just described, could we ever see a day when, you know, there, there probably will be another pandemic or another thing like this, even if it's not a pandemic down the road. Could we ever see a day when rather than frantically search for a vaccine, we have a test to see if your body is capable of dealing with this or if you're one of the people who's going to be in trouble and tell the people who are in trouble to quarantine? Yeah, there's a lot of work being done on that um, right now um, and and even in the recent past. Uh, so there are groups, including groups in Canada, who are looking to try and develop uh, really quick tests that they could do on people to determine whether that person is someone who is likely to have a really severe infection and therefore, you know, should take extra special precautions versus someone who is likely to just have sort of mild, common cold or flu-like symptoms mm. and will be okay staying at home. When you do cr try to create a vaccine for this, is the purpose of the vaccine simply to um, to control it or to isolate the virus, or does it have to kill the virus? So the vaccine, um, vaccines can work in different ways, but, but primarily the goal of the vaccine is to prevent people from getting infected initially. And so functionally what that means is when, as soon as the virus um, begins to infect a person, the immune system kills it really rapidly before it can cause any symptoms or spread to someone else.
So is this an immune system thing? I mean, we hear a lot of people say, well, you know, you can boost your immune system with different things, with vitamins or supplements or whatever. And I'm not suggesting that's the, the sole uh, solution to this, but can you, even with a virus like this, boost your system, at least help yourself with a little bit? So it's really important that people um, stay healthy, certainly. You know, unfortunately, you know, taking taking supplements is not going to prevent you from getting infected, but it's certainly going to ensure that when you do get infected or if you do get infected, that your immune system is in the best possible position to fight the infection off so that you recover quickly and don't become severely ill. Vaccines work in kind of a fundamentally different way because they they literally teach the immune system what it should be looking for. So without a vaccine, the first time we get infected, the immune system doesn't really know that the virus is a problem until it's too late. But with the vaccine, what we do is we essentially teach our bodies that this is something that it needs to watch out for. So the immune system can really quickly respond and get rid of the virus before it's able to make us sick. I am already over time, so we only have 10 seconds, but when a vaccine, when someone discovers something, is it an aha moment that it's clear this is the thing or is it a gradual process to figure it out? It's gradual. It starts with, like I said, us essentially identifying what we need to target, and then we need to make sure first that it's safe, and then second that it works in practice. Um, so it, it is a, a very stepwise process, but we, we have very good leads, and there are a lot of good candidate vaccines that are already moving forward. Dr. Matthew Miller uh, from McMaster University, a fantastic explanation of a very complicated thing. I really appreciate you taking the time today. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Dow Jones for St. Patrick's Day was up today, five point something percent, up about a thousand points. Uh, Everybody's happy about that. I'm not going to say the world is spinning on the proper axis quite yet, but it was a good day. Always good when it's on the upside rather than the downside, especially if you have some money in retirement funds or the market or whatever. But... I'm not sure, as I say, that this means the world is perfectly back on its axis yet, because long after the medical part of coronavirus is gone, whenever that is, whenever that's settled down, uh, we have the economy that we're going to have to worry about. And I don't want to be uh, the dark cloud of gloom, but it there are signs that this is going to be a difficult time. Hopefully not, but there are signs that we may be in for a bit of a tough time with the economy. Sean Moore is a friend of ours. He's a financial advisor with Mandeville Private Client Incorporated. Sean, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you're absolutely welcome, Scott. And I'm just here to tell you I have my green food dye color (laughs) and my uh, cider waiting for me with dinner after we finish speaking. That is good. As long as the food was dyed green and just wasn't, you know, from the storage in the garage from the bunker that it it had gone bad and it was green. You just got to make sure it's just dyed. Absolutely. What are you telling clients right now? Because, I mean, look, everybody who's in the financial world has clients who are beating down the door and in a panic right now. Uh, what are you telling clients right now about where the economy is going? Not necessarily just the market, where the economy as a whole is going. Well, I think we're you know, trying to be honest with ourselves, try to have a good conversation with clients about what they can control and what they can't control. When it comes to the economy, it's evident that things are shutting down every day. We hear new reports of stores closing. And this is both a shocking thing to the senses, but it's also a good thing for us collectively as we work on our, our social distancing. This will mean a short 
shocks of the economy because things are closed, sales aren't happening, maybe things are still working out online, maybe our staples like the grocery stores and the pharmacies are still doing you know, a lot of good sales, but other places are certainly going to be slowing down. So we expect to see some kind of contraction, probably pretty sharp in the second or third quarter of this year. And uh, whether or not that extends on further is going to depend on how well we do with our social distancing and about containing the spread of COVID-19. Ideally, the markets and the economy will respond well once those cases start going down. But the question is, this is kind of unprecedented. I mean, I'm trying to think if we've ever seen anything like this. I mean, when 9-11 happened, we shut everything down for, uh, I don't know, a week or two. Uh, and I wasn't alive in the second world war or the first world war, obviously to know what happened with the economy back then exactly. But in my lifetime, I don't remember anything remotely that would compare to the not entire, but heavy economic shutdown of our, of our system. Yeah. That's what's really interesting about our response to this crisis. We certainly had outbreaks and pandemics in the past. You know, when you think back to 1918 through 1920 and the Spanish flu, or you think maybe into the the Hong Kong flu that came in the 60s. And those episodes certainly had a lot more dramatic spread, a lot higher death count than we, we currently have. What's different this time is our response to it. We're trying to be very responsible about the spread of this. We're trying to make sure we don't overtax our healthcare system you know, as much as possible. And that's going to inflict some economic harm on us. But the key thing is, is that the governments and the central banks around the world are working hard to try to stem how bad that damage will be and make it so that when we get out to the other side of this, that the conditions are very accommodative. So rates have been slashed considerably. There's a tremendous amount of liquidity being pumped into the credit markets, and that's going to help businesses feel comfortable and feel confident. There may be layoffs coming, but then you have EI available right away thanks to uh, some stimulus actions that the government took fiscally. The hope is is that with easy conditions and free-flowing credit, that when we get to the other side of things, hiring will pick up, businesses will be spending, and that sort of thing will help stimulate us into the second half of the year. And many of the economists that I speak to and listen to, they are quite positive about how things should be on the other side of this. So you, you're you taking the position, and it, look, it's a great position. It's it's way more upbeat than, than I have thought at this point. But you're taking the position that when this is all over, that the economy roars into high gear in catch-up time, and everyone is just so relieved to be done with it that everything is back in full speed. It's going to depend on how long this lasts. If we can keep things contained and we can slow the rate of new cases in a quick period of time, then there's less impetus for businesses to lay people off. There's a greater ability to get people back working and get people out. The interesting thing is that we, we've gone into this in a very healthy position. We've, we've had one of the best long-run bulls economy, whether you want to take it from a stock market perspective or from a, a jobs perspective. In Canada, unfortunately, we also are dealing with the hit from oil. So there'll be different cases around the province where maybe Ontario springs back quicker than it does out, out west, unfortunately, because of the you know, supply pumping coming from Saudi Arabia and Russia. So we have a little bit of a, a unique double hit going on right where it's not just the pandemic. It's also a little bit of an oil supply shock in Canada. It's a difficult situation to be sure, but what is encouraging is that central banks and governments are making a coordinated effort to make sure the conditions are ripe for recovery. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Sean Moyer, financial advisor with Mandeville Private Client Incorporated about our economy. That is the second part of this story, the medical, the health issue with coronavirus. Clearly front and center, but we also have this thing called an economy that once everything is done, and even until then, uh, it's an important part too, because once we get back to life, people want jobs, people want to be able to buy stuff, people want to be able to eat, and people, you know, all the stuff that comes with that. And Sean, here, you can talk me off the window ledge here, Sean, I'll let you do that, because here's the part when I look and I say, okay, I think we're doing by and large the right thing. Um, because people who aren't working because their businesses are shut down, their companies are paying them to stay home. And I think that's a humane thing to do, but money doesn't come out of the ether. It's not a mythical thing. That money has to come from somewhere. And especially for smaller businesses, not the Walmarts or the McDonald's, but smaller businesses, bosses who pay, that money is coming out of their pocket. I'm looking going, where does that money eventually come back from? Yeah, it's going to have to come back from a renewed demand. And that's going to come entirely, as it always does, from confidence. The markets and the economy does best when everyone feels comfortable and they feel confident and they feel optimistic. And that's, I think, the most important part of what we're going through right now is trying to keep the optics reasonable. That's why keeping people paid to stay home right now is the right thing to do both ethically and for the economy and the confidence. And that's where it comes down to us needing to be really stringent about the social distancing, to really practice what we're talking about with the frequent hand washing, with the keeping the space between one another, and with the canceling of, of you know, large scale events, conferences, or even, you know, your local church gatherings, things like that. Because if we can keep things short, then people's savings, businesses' savings, their access to credit should help push us through this. If it starts to go on longer, I can see where a negative revision is going to be massive. Let me ask you an out there question, just because you brought it up, and I know that you are a financial guy, and I'm probably asking you more of a personal question, but we talk about companies paying their their employees and it being a humane thing, it being the right thing to do. If you are one of those people who's at home and you're being paid by your employer not to work right now, do you owe them something? When this is all over, when the business opens again, not financially, I don't mean, do you think you owe your boss or your employer something if they've helped you through this? Well, I like to think that's one of the special things about this particular country is that we are an excellent social country and we really believe in supporting one another. I mean, I'm a bit patriotic, but at at the same time, I think that what goes around comes around and putting the right things out into the world should be reciprocated on the other end of things. And I mean, I think when it comes to moving jobs, pay is very important, but so is the secondary benefits, such as what you have for health care, what you have for pension savings, and then the tertiary benefits of how well do you get along with your workmates, how well, how well do you get along with your boss. And I, I think a lot of goodwill can, can come from this, and hopefully that will equate to an improved level of confidence on the other side of things. So you're talking to your clients, they're calling you up and they're saying what to do. And I'm not, again, talking about whether to invest or whether to put money or take money out of the stock market. That's, we can have that discussion a different day. But when, when they call up and they say, you know, uh, Sean, I'm worried about my money. Do you tell them carry on as normal right now? Or do you tell them, you know what, don't spend any more than you have to and keep your money in your pocket? I think it's very situational, depending on not only where a person is in their life cycle, but how secure they feel with their jobs. 
one of the things that we really try to preach is an appropriate framework and sticking to that framework through all scenarios. And so we want to make sure that going into this, people already had a balanced portfolio. And now is the time that they can, if they need to, access the cash reserves that we've set up for them or move from a, a stable asset class of fixed income and take advantage of a lower equity price today through natural rebalancing. In, at, at the end of things, it's about a framework. And going into this, you, you want to have made sure that you have a comfortable level of equity allocation, that you have several months set aside in a cash savings so that you can tap into that if it's necessary. When it comes to spending, I think it's about keeping up your necessary spending, whether it comes to your you know, extra spending. I don't really think the option's there at this point. To, to there, there aren't a lot of places to spend. You're right. Exactly. Even like Amazon is shutting it. down delivery right now. I mean, that's, that's definitely a reality because you want to keep people home and you want to keep this from spreading. And so, uh, you know, that's where it comes down to spending on necessities. But at the same time, you know, we see pictures of people going out and hoarding things. And it, it's interesting because that that type of fear mentality is the same thing that you see on on the stock market when people are selling without any consideration to to what exactly that's going to translate to their future selves and their future savings it's the same thing with going out and hoarding at the at the grocery store i saw a picture of somebody with a cart full of meat and i think you know is it even possible to eat that after freezing it (laughs) six months from now you'll be having five steaks in a row and going why did i do this again and i mean that's that's a bit of forced damage on oneself. I had another discussion with a client who had several thousands of dollars in capital gains. And he said, oh, you know, I think I want to get out of this market. And I said, well, what you're going to do is you're going to lock in a loss from the recent highs. And then you're also going to guarantee yourself a tax bill. Do you want to be paying a definite tax bill by taking those capital gains when we know that your time horizon is another 10, 15 years from now? So it can be important to just set aside that method of panic keep things going as to your framework. And the same thing is with your spending. We always you know, try to recommend clients have a budget and stick to that budget. I would agree with everything you just said about don't hoard unless there's a sale on bacon. Then every bit of bacon you can put into your freezer to subside on, I would I would say go for that and every man for himself. Uh, Sean Moore, always love having you on. Uh, with Mandeville Private Client Incorporated, you can look Sean up if you're interested in some advice. Really appreciate it, Sean. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I know someone who was in that generation. His name is Rick Zamperin from 900 CHML. Rick, were you one of the guys who would return home to watch the Flintstones at lunch and then go back to school? I don't recall watching it during lunchtime, no. Uh, I think it was more of an early afternoon thing, like after school. And before school, it was Inspector Gadget. You know what else was before school? 20-minute workout, although that was a few years later. <laughs> I do recall watching that before going to high school. Uh, leave I, it at that. And everybody in your age group would have the exact same sort of guys anyway. Yeah. Guys anyway. The, the only workout show ever that was that required a turntable, that required a lazy Susan for full <laughs> viewing experience. It was, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Indescribable. I I think that's the best way. It was yes, (laughs) yes. Simply put, yes. Yeah. Um, Yes. And and again, anyone who's listening that uh, was of that vintage, was of that era, knows exactly what we're talking about. And if you don't, well, I don't know that it would be that 
salacious in 2020. There's so much stuff now that is so over the top. I was going to say go to YouTube and watch a clip of it because there's some stuff on there. Right and now, Rick, it looks kind of tame. Yeah, but if they did a 2020 version, oh. you know, it would be like it wouldn't be on cable TV. Oh, no, it would be on cable you know, TV late H- at night. It would be on HBO. Oh, baby. <laughs> yeah, I see where you're going with that. Yeah, yes, yeah. it may be on adult sites that uh, no one else can. If you move every, if you move the whole thing forward, it was it was pretty. Uh, let's put it this way: you didn't want to be watching the TV when mom or dad walked into the room with a 20 minute workout on. <laughs> That's right. You would have, uh, anyway, let's move along. From the 20-minute workout to the 40-year-old workout, or what's he, 41, 42 now? Uh, just heard this news. First of all, we heard news this morning that Tom Brady sent out this tweet to Patriots Nation, which, by the way, Rick, is there any group in the world now that people don't apply the word nation to the end of it? Uh, yeah, it's either that or, or city, uh, you know, blank city strong, you know, some uh, right. disaster has gone on there. But the, yes, uh, Leafs Nation, Ticat Nation, Patriots Nation, the list goes on and on. I happened to see my first ever episode or part of an episode of The Bachelor the other day. It was the grand finale. And uh, it was on in the house, and I sat down and watched. And they kept referring to Bachelor Nation, and I was like, oh, "Okay, wow. we've we've now we've scraped the barnacles off the bottom of the boat here." But anyway, <laughs> so he sent a note to uh, Patriot Nation that he was not going to be continuing as a member of the New England Patriots. We'll get to what came today. Were you shocked this morning? Not just that he was leaving, but that it seemed that he was leaving, not because he had a designated landing spot, but it seemed as though it's just because from the sounds of it, he and Bill Belichick were just done with each other. Yeah, you know what? This has kind of been a slow burn over the last number of weeks, really. So it wasn't as shocking as I think it would have been if he announced uh, or the team announced right after the season that, you know, that's it, we're, we're walking away or I'm walking away from the team. Uh, there was, you'll recall, a uh, an epic tweet that Brady sent out uh, just before the Super Bowl of, of him in shadow, uh, you know, either walking in or walking out of Foxborough, and it was basically teasing a commercial uh, that was part of the broadcast. But that had, you know, everyone a buzz about, you know, the future of Tom Brady. And so we've kind of been building up to, you know, we're, we're, we know that there's going to be a decision. There had been a lot of talk that, you know, he was probably going to look at, you know, this, you know, being his last mega deal, although he hasn't really had a lot of mega deals. He's taken some hometown, hometown discounts over the years, but he wanted to really cash in on his last you know, NFL contract. And he's certainly doing so with some of the money that he's getting with his prospective new team here. But yeah, the surprise factor was kind of, you know, tepid because we've been kind of building up to this point. It just was, it, it seemed to me that, it, you're right, it has been a buildup, but that a guy who, who's been what he's been would leave seemingly just because he couldn't stand being there in a place where he's had so much success seemed very odd to me. And I don't know if that's truly the case now because we just got the news that he is probably going to be signing with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Mm-hmm. But it, I, I'm not, it's hard to read whether the Buccaneers were always going to be his landing point or if he decided the Patriots were out and then Tampa Bay finally said, okay, we'll give you what you want. It's really hard to tell. Yeah, I think, I think if Tom had his druthers, he'd probably still be play, playing for the Patriots at the money that he's getting from uh, Tampa Bay. We hear it's upwards of $30 million a season. Let's not forget he's going to be 43 you know, this summer. 
Um, but the fact of the matter is, and this came out during, I don't know if you recall, the, the NFL did their, their top 100 all-time team in celebration of their 100th anniversary. And Tom Brady obviously is on this team. And one of the coaches that was on the team was Bill Belichick. And NFL Network had a great presentation, uh, you know, segmenting each specific uh, position group. So the top, you know, whatever receivers and running backs and DBs and whatever the case is. And during one of the episodes, they were talking to Tom and Bill and Tom made the reference of, you know, was, it wasn't really, uh, you know, fun. It was more of a business-like approach. And certainly, you know, New England had, a, you know, a great amount of success. And Rob Gronkowski, who was also part of this 100 all-time team uh, among the tight ends, said that, uh, you know, you couldn't really celebrate a win because, you know, as Bill Belichick is known to do, we're on to, you know, X team next week. It was always a, uh, you know, uh, they completed the job by getting the, the, the victory and moving on to the next team. They couldn't really relish or celebrate any sort of victory unless they won, you know, the Super Bowl. Obviously, uh, you know, how could you not? But the, the fun factor in New England is not there. And Bill Belichick, he's had a tremendous amount of success, but uh, is more business-like, I think, than, than any other coach in NFL history. So if you want to celebrate wins... I'm not sure how much celebrating you're going to do in Tampa. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you this. He'll have a lot more fun, I think, just being in Tampa Bay as opposed to being in Boston, at least weather-wise. There's a lot more fun things to do, I guess, in and around the beach or in Florida. But, yeah, in, in the win-loss column, uh, the Buccaneers are nowhere close to what New England has been even this past season and, uh, and certainly over the years. Uh, he's going to be with another experienced coach in Bruce Arians who – is a quote-unquote quarterback whisperer. He's worked with some tremendous quarterbacks over the years, Ben Roethlisberger being one, Kurt Warner, uh, you know, some, some Hall of Famers or future Hall of Famers. Uh, so he's going to an okay spot, but not certainly not as competitive as what New England's going to be. What's really puzzling about this, in a sense, and not puzzling in the sense that you bring in Tom Brady because he is, I think, inarguably the greatest quarterback of all time, and so... You know, and if you figure that he's got any juice left and he gives you the, the leadership and he gives you the, maybe he's a draw for other players to come in, who knows what. But I mean, I, I don't I don't think it's silly to bring him in at this point. It's not like he's a joke at this point. He's still a good quarterback. But Tampa Bay was the fourth highest scoring team in all the NFL last year. So it's not like you're needing a guy to come in to put points on the board. They already were doing that. Yes, they were uh, doing that uh, and doing that, uh, you know, game in and game out. They were scoring, you know, 30, 40, in some cases, 50 points. Uh, but, you know, they had a quarterback who just was not uh, getting the job done in terms of the uh, touchdown to interception ratio because Jameis Winston, yeah, he threw for 5,000 yards and yeah, he threw for 30 touchdowns, but he also threw for 30 interceptions. And not all of them were blamed on him, but he's the first quarterback. In the 100-year history of the National Football League, they have a 30-30 season, and that's not a good season because a uh, 30-30 season in baseball is great, 30 homers, 30 stolen bases. But in the NFL, you want to shy away from those 30 interceptions. So I think when you look at Tom's uh, you know, historical statistics, it throws a lot of touchdowns, doesn't turn the ball over a lot. If their offensive line can play great and their skill players can you know, play great, they should be you know, an okay team. They're not going to win the Super Bowl. Let's not, uh, you know, kid ourselves that Tom Brady is not the Tom Brady of 10 years ago. Still a very effective quarterback. Um, but, you know, they're going to need some help. They're in a pretty tough division. And, uh, well, we'll see what he can do. He, again, he's going to be 43 uh, and earning 30 mil a season. So he might just be able to put his feet up and say, oh, I'm just going to ride into the sunset. Who is this a bigger risk for? 
because there, I mean, there are two players in this. Obviously, when I say players, I mean two people, not necessarily on-field players, but Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. And you got to believe that unless both have unbelievable seasons, and wouldn't it be ironic if somehow they could meet in the Super Bowl, which would just be the greatest thing in the history of football? But if one of them does not have a great season. What does this do to one of their reputations then? I, and I don't even know who I would think is most likely to be in that position, but both of these guys have now put their reputation, in a sense, on the line. Yeah, I know, you know, Bill Belichick, when they drafted Jimmy Garoppolo a few seasons ago, I mean, that was the, the, the plan uh, and the succession plan in New England. So I think Bill had kind of a roadmap for when Tom was going to walk away. The, the only problem was he didn't walk away until today, apparently. <laughs> And they had to get rid of Garoppolo in a, in a trade with uh, you know San Francisco that didn't really net them you know a lot considering what uh, you know Jimmy G has done over the last couple of seasons. I think the bigger risk lands with Brady because you know he can't he can't possibly win a Super Bowl. I, mean, I guess it's conceivable that he can win with Tampa Bay, but I just can't see it in the grand scheme of things. So he's not going to achieve the greatness that he did in uh, in New England. Uh, by the same sense, you know, you look at Bill Belichick and all of the division, you know, 11 straight division titles, 17 overall, you know, two records that may never be touched as well, you know, uh, multiple Super Bowl rings, uh, you know, just a machine in New England. If, you know, whoever they bring in at quarterback, and right now the starting quarterback in New England is Jarrett Stidham, uh, you know, but they have some options, whether it's Andy Dalton, Nick Foles, Joe Flacco, Jacoby Brissett, Cam Newton. Know, could all be options. They'd have to pry them all away from their current teams, probably not for a lot of money. But if New England goes 8-8, eight and eight, uh, that's not going to look good on you know, Belichick and Robert Kraft. And if Tampa Bay goes 9-7 and seven or anything greater, you know, Tom's going to come out looking uh, pretty terrific. What if, yeah, and uh, look, e- either one could, either one's, I think, has been looking, and, and I don't want to read minds, but from everything we hear, each either each of those two guys has felt like the other guy gets the credit for the success of the Patriots, and so you get this narrative that they both want to show they're the one that made the Patriots great. Uh, you know, look, I, I could easily see a scenario in which K in which both guys didn't have great seasons, and then mm-hmm. then what do you do with that narrative? Then then who becomes the guy who made the Patriots great, or do we go back to the one that I've held all along, and that is? Neither one did it. It was the fact that they were Lennon and McCartney, and it was just the two of them together were way better than each of them individually. Right. Yeah, I can agree with that too. And and this is this is the one thing we haven't seen. You know, Bill Belichick has never had uh, a lot of success as a head coach without Tom Brady. You know, he coached the Jets, he coached the Browns, uh, didn't do anything with those two franchises. But along he comes in New England, and Tom Brady arrives on the scene, and through you know building of a, a an amazing team. Um, becomes the juggernaut of the NFL. So th- this will be the first time that we get to see each of them uh, separated uh, and, and see what they can do. Um, you know, it's going to be at least two seasons for Tom. Uh, Bill is probably going to hold on for a lot longer than that. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how they both play. I'm not even sure if they play each other on the schedule. I just season. looked it up. The schedule is not out, but the opponents are out, and Tampa okay. does not play... Wow. The Patriots this year, though you have to know that somehow, even though this is supposed to be all computer generated, somehow in 2021, these teams are miraculously going to meet. Yeah. You just know it. And it'll be a Monday night game or a Sunday night game. Yeah. And somehow that'll come together. 
the, the one thing I'm, I'm not sure fearful is the word, but, you know, the, the Joe Montanas, the Joe Namaths, the Dan Fouts, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, unbelievable quarterbacks who spent, you know, a lot of great years with one team, had great success, won Super Bowls, and then finished their career with a different team. There's just a little bit of a stain on their legacy. Not a lot, but it's there. Uh, it's more of a, you know, a, a, a minor joke than anything. But at the end of the day, you know, we can't take anything, anything away from Tom Brady. He has achieved everything and then some. To have six Super Bowl rings is unbelievable, and I think they went to ten Super Bowls in total. Just a phenomenal career. Maybe will never be matched in, in the next 100 years of this league. I don't expect that Tampa Bay is going to have to bring in a jeweler, though, to measure him for a new ring. <laughs> yeah, the odds are against them, that's for sure. Uh, just one more thing here. We know who the most upset people were about this. Uh, I spent most of the day today trying to get anybody from Boston to come on and talk about Tom Brady. Not that I didn't want you on, but I mean, we tried to get every, not a return call. And, and the comments, the everything there, the, the, Boston is pretty um, pretty sour about this round, pretty hurt about this right now. I got to believe, though, that the people in Buffalo, forget Tampa Bay, the people in Buffalo right now have to be dancing. I think everybody in the AFC is dancing. I think everybody in the AFC East is happy. And I think, yes, the Buffalo Bills are probably the happiest team because they've played New England at least the toughest out of the other two opponents in the AFC East. Uh, And they've had some close calls with New England. And I think finally, at least for the Bills, the Dolphins, and the Jets, they're looking at the division to say, ah, good riddance. Now we can at least maybe, maybe (laughs) be competitive uh, the Bills have the best chance to do that because they have the best roster, at least on paper. A young up-and-coming quarterback. They added Stephon Diggs last night in a great trade for them. Have a good ground game, elite defense, good special teams, uh, a progressive head coach. Yeah, this, this Bills team is on the rise, and they are easily the happiest team in the AFC. Do you expect, do you expect Bill Belichick, one thing we know about Bill Belichick, somehow he always seems to be able to find someone to come in and take over whatever position he needs. Do you expect that somehow, despite anything, we're going to a day, a week, a month from now, have our jaw drop and hit the floor when we find out who's quarterbacking for them? Because we go, holy cow, we got him. Yeah, I think there's going to be one of those guys, whether it's a Foles or a Dalton, someone of that, someone of that ilk who's had some success in the NFL. That uh, and I think we've seen it in the past. You know, players want to play in New England because. They have a great chance to win the Super Bowl. But now that it's the most important piece of the puzzle that has to lead this team to the Super Bowl, uh, you know every quarterback is going to want to go there. But what about some of the other high-profile free agents or other players who maybe want to go to New England one day to win a championship? The Tom Brady-less Patriots may be a little less uh, you know, enticing to go to. But we'll see. I wouldn't be surprised at all if Bill Belichick has something up his sleeve and has already planned this whole thing out. And he brings in, you know, quarterback X, and they go all the way to the big dance again. Well, the Edmonton Eskimos literally just tweeted out, breaking, we are officially out of the Tom Brady sweepstakes. <laughs> Good for them. Good for them. Having a little fun with this one. Uh, Rick Zamperin, always appreciate the time. Thanks for taking it today. You got it. Take care. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.